0: And welcome to Witch Hassle. I'm your host, Betamax Lampshade, and I am so pleased that you are joining me here today because I am going to be talking with Britta Ager about her book, The Scent of Ancient Magic. We are talking about the smell of ancient Mediterranean religious and magical practice. It's very cool. I am so pleased that I was able to have this chat, and I'm so excited to bring it to you before we get to it i feel like i would be remiss without saying two things one thank you so much to the patrons who support this show you're helping me defray the costs of all the stuff i have to do to actually make this happen in the world so i really do appreciate the help you are giving and if you are interested in supporting the program go to patreon.com wishhassle where you will find Not only the ability to throw me a few dollars, thank you very much, but also a bunch of bonus content that is not available elsewhere, including part of this interview with Britta Ager. So if you want the full thing, just hit pause right now and hop on over to patreon.com slash hassle. though of course I do understand, you know, it should be said, I believe in honest pay for honest labor, but I am not a profiteer. So if you're like, hey, I would love to hear all this bonus content, but I don't really have the scratch to afford that at this time. Totally cool. No worries. I say either do the thing that I hear people do on Patreon where you can like sign up and then unsign up. And if you time it right, it won't charge you, right? Like if you you bounce out before the right time of the month. I don't know when that actually would be. I'm sure you can Google this or just email me and be like, Hey, I want to hear this bonus thing and it's behind a paywall and I don't have any and I don't have the money for it and i'll just send it your way no big deal information should be free we're all in this together cooper.wilhelm at gmail.com or reach out on one of the uh instagram or twitter or whatever actually speaking of which on instagram i I said two things this is a this is a third thing it's a bonus thing um i recently did the beginning of a little series i'm going to do on instagram of videos where i do new york city magical and occult history so go check that out the first one was about a place in Brooklyn Heights, 300 Henry Street. If that is an address that means anything to you, or you'd like it to mean something to you, by all means, pop on over to the Witch Hassle Instagram. Very fun. The other thing I wanted to mention, which was going to be the second thing, now it is the third, and then we'll get to the interview, I promise, is that if you are feeling uh, reasonably upset about the overturning of Roe versus Wade, By all means, pop on over to Abortion Access Front's website, that's aafront.org, if you want to find ways to give of your time, give of your money, etc., to help further the cause of giving people access to abortion. It's great stuff. I just spent the day listening to a bunch of panel discussions they had about it, and I'll put a link up not only to their website, but also to the part of youtube where you can find those panel discussions by understanding as the recordings will go up uh, soon if they have not already so check that out be part of making this country suck less and so without further ado here is my conversation with britta Ager. it was fun as hell and i am so pleased to bring it to you right now so thank you so much for being on what prompted this project? While I was working on some previous
1: uh, academic projects, I uh, I had been doing a lot with ancient magical material. I did a dissertation on, for example, the magic that Roman farmers use, which uh, there's more of than certainly I had thought going into that project. But I started noticing over the course of that research that uh, smell figured pretty large in a lot of the ancient descriptions of witches at work or folklore having to do with the supernatural, Uh, and particularly once I sat down and started looking at some of the surviving spell books from uh, Greek and Roman antiquity, there was just a tremendous use and a tremendous variety of uses of smells in those texts, and my field is often very focused on literature in a way that really focuses on the words of the literature. Uh, Nobody had really looked at this particular material from a more sensory perspective. And so uh, I kind of came back to some of these spells and spell books um, and other types of material that had been studied in, uh, in many other ways, but not in this particular one.
0: That's really exciting. And like you, one of the things I did not expect to encounter in this book is the opening section, which I would say is worth the price of admission all up by itself. But you talk about the move anthropology has made in the last 40, 50-ish years toward actually taking on a respect for scent as an important cultural phenomenon. So could you talk a little bit about like where you put this study in that canon or in that sort of movement?
1: I'm so glad to hear you say that it was worth the price of the book because I had to fight at a couple of points to keep that section in there where um, I think there's a a tremendous assumption when you write a book like this, that it's mostly going to be read by people who kind of know the scholarship, at least at a basic level already. And I really wanted to keep that to to make this um, something that was easy to jump into if you haven't done all of this reading. So I'm a scholar in the field of classical studies and this is a field which is very old, but frequently we come to some of these bodies of theory a bit later than other fields. So sensory studies became much more popular and uh, well-studied starting really in the, the 70s and sort of increasing as we uh, later than that. There's been some really interesting work done in the last couple of decades, which classics is really just within the last couple of years, starting to uh, really take on and to work into our understanding of the ancient world um, as opposed to modern cultures. And I think it's interesting for classics to need to think about that body of study because we're so often focused on the texts of antiquity, the physical artifacts of antiquity in a way that really prioritizes sight and hearing and um, the the oral but it's very easy for us to overlook kind of the lived experience of life a couple thousand years ago and that's very often hard to reconstruct um, although easier to do than I think we thought it was maybe a decade ago. It's kind of fascinating. Everybody in classics seems to have independently decided, wow, sensory studies is really interesting and cool, and we should be doing that at about the same time. When I started this book project, I didn't know anybody else who was interested in it, and by the time it came out, there had been this proliferation of work. Um, in sort of different areas of ancient studies, uh, really trying to reconstruct the um, the sounds and the sense and the textures and so on of the uh, the ancient world.
0: Part of the issue, here, I think, I think there's an intuitive tendency to when there is maybe a gap in scholarship or something. I like call like an ideological um, myopia. Is that the noun form of myopic? Yeah. Anyway. That works. Um, it's, I, I feel like there's a tendency, maybe this is because I come from like a literature background, to blame the Victorians. But with this particular sort of tyranny of sight and word, you actually trace this back as far as, say, like Aristotle. How have even the ancients sort of contoured our understanding of the senses and limited that understanding to what we might say is a abbreviated list? of what senses are actually at play in human experience.
1: It's Aristotle who actually comes up with this whole notion of five senses that um, certainly in American culture, I think is just such an ingrained assumption that like that's the ways of perceiving the world. Um, We've got five of them and there we go. And anything more than that is like a supernatural sixth
0: sense. I mean, he develops it out of sort of a an analogy with the five elements right like it's an elemental right. kind of so aristotle comes up with this canonical list of five
1: senses which yeah are analogous to the five elements for him and everybody else just kind of follows him in that but um one thing that anthropology in more recent years and and um you know studies of um human perception and um the you know, variety of both biological and culturally conditioned ways that we perceive the world. Um, What this study has made clear is that there's an enormous variety of senses which aren't included in that list. So, for example, uh, proprioception, the, uh, the, the feeling of where your body is in space, and difference between heat and cold is arguably a different sense than just so we we lump a lot of things under feeling that should probably be separated out as separate biological mechanisms so it's it's become clear that our sensory world is much broader and much uh, more complicated than the you know several thousand year old Aristotelian view would have us believe, but that sort of canonical, nice, tidy list of five senses is still really culturally
0: predominant, at least here in the U.S. This, this relegation of senses like scent, for example, to the less rational, to the, the more sort of animal, did you find that this was actually the case in the experiences of people you were reading about for this research, or did you find that actually scent was much more sort of on a par with other ways of perceiving the world? That's a fascinating question. I think when when we're looking at
1: ancient literature I think we're already into this sort of Aristotelian prioritization of sight and hearing as the higher order senses and then everything else as lower order, uh, more animalistic. But at the same time, There's certainly an awareness in some of the texts that I'm working with that uh, scent or other senses are tremendously important, regardless of what philosophers like Aristotle want to describe them as. And certainly the magicians of the magical papyri, these spell books that we have from Greco-Roman Egypt, um, they use scent uh, in incredibly varied and uh, important ways and they seem very self, self-aware about what they're doing with scent and using it to create uh, a ritual experience for themselves. So um, I, I suspect they you know, were, were aware of larger cultural norms that scent was not as important as sight, but they, they also don't seem terribly bothered by that notion.
0: Did this idea that like scent was perhaps on the underside of things give it a certain potency in these workings? Is there a sense that because scent was sort of subliminal or perhaps was um, harder to defend oneself against than say verbal suggestion, did that give it like an extra power in these moments or in these conceptions? I think quite possibly it did.
1: We we get comments in ancient medical literature, um, novels, et cetera, about how scent affects people. Um, There's a number of Medical remedies, for example, that suggest using various scents to cure your insomnia or to induce particular dreams. This is something that comes up in the spell books where uh, they really do seem to treat scent often as a way of um, inducing experiences that you would not necessarily have in your day-to-day life. And uh, I, I think, yeah, kind of getting around your Um, normal perception of reality with these overpowering uh, sensual experiences. And this is something that's recognized by other people in antiquity who suggest scent as part of medical cures
0: or uh, talk about its effect on dreams. This is interesting because I think something you point out in the book is this idea that the same scent might be used for the same purpose, but the rationale behind it might change over time. That there is perhaps a sense that something is supernatural at one point, and then strictly medical and empirical at another. What are the sort of arguments behind these scents over time? Because I mean, is it is it strictly a question of this thing has this very mundane property in the same way that you might take a pill for heartburn? Or is it that there's something sort of spiritual going on? Do scents have spirits? Do they have intent
1: Yes, um, I'm going to back up a little bit and sort of address this question more generally um, and then come back to Scent, where this is something that we see a lot with people in general, but looking at the ancient literature, it certainly comes up, where you have these moments which could arguably be treated as magical, as supernatural in some contexts, but then not necessarily in others. And it kind of depends on who's observing what's going on, who's doing what's going on, and other sort of contextual and social clues that tell people how they want to interpret people's intentions and actions in a particular moment. So, for example, um, this uh, author, Apuleius, he writes a speech, which might be fictional or might not, in which he claims to be defending himself against accusations of using love magic to make a wealthy widow marry him. And he says, you know, her her male relatives have brought all these accusations because they just want to keep her money. And so they've thrown this laundry list of charges at him. And among other things, he says, they've accused him of conducting some sort of Creepy nighttime ritual uh, at an inn where he was staying. Uh, They say, oh, there were chicken feathers and soot left behind, and he this took place overnight in secret. He must have been doing some terrible, um, you know, uh, illicit ritual. And certainly, you could look at those signifiers of chicken feathers, evidence of sacrifice, evidence of burning, and say, ah, yes, um, some secret ritual. But Apuleius says it's an inn, people cook there. What are you expecting to find in a kitchen? So it really comes down to how do you want to interpret that scene? Do you dislike Apuleius and you want to interpret it, it in the most hostile way possible? Or if you're Apuleius, do you want to interpret it as this is just everyday life and people are making a big deal out of it? And that's true throughout you know all the discussions of magic from antiquity where some of the material i looked at earlier for my dissertation um, on farming magic a lot of what i wind up talking about farming magic is you know potions things you put on plants um, a lot of it just kind of looks like what we would now call organic gardening advice but if if you look at its connections to the other folklore in antiquity it's clear that a lot of this was coming from a sort of more folkloric place and that some people would see this as a form of magic. But the authors who record these things, they're respectable, upper-class gentlemen, and they don't want to be, you know, claiming, here's a bunch of spells I'm teaching you. Rather, they sort of dress it up and say, uh, the uneducated may see this as magic, but we men of science know that this is actually just working through the operation of perfectly understandable natural laws. Um, So, you know, taking that material and kind of in not changing it, but changing or attempting to change people's perceptions of it and what sort of intellectual framework people are putting it in. And this is very much true with the sense that I'm talking about in this book, where we get a number of instances where, you know, one person may say, that's just a pretty smelling perfume. It makes me feel nice when I smell it. And other people may say, well, but if it's, If it's making you feel nice, it's changing how you think. And if it's changing how you think, this is a form of essentially mind control. This is a type of magic. And this is, you know, this type of discussion where particularly where people get very worried about other people controlling them in somewhat illicit ways is part of larger cultural discussions going on in the Greek and Roman world about you know what is the soul, and how does the physical world interact with the soul? And um, you know what does magic do? What counts as magic? So, for example, there's other contexts in which music is considered magic because music can affect your emotions and make you feel different ways. So it's not that big of a step from there to saying, you know, when women put on perfume uh, and they attract men by smelling nice. Well, they're you know, that's witchy, that's, that is them controlling men and make them making them do things they would not otherwise do. And that is inherently, at least very similar to the supernatural.
0: It's, it's amazing hearing you say that, because I did not make the connection until just now that that is a kind of rhetoric that does seem to be coming back, unfortunately, in some forms of American yes. discourse, but, um, or I guess I would say Canadian discourse, because I am thinking of a very particular figure for that one. But uh, this question, though, of the soul being in some way vulnerable to scent. Was was there a strong sense of that that this was the case, that the soul was sort of at the at the mercy of the things that one might smell? Yes,
1: there are some places where people specifically say, you know, scent can put you into a trance, scent can be used to like put you into the right mindset to contact the supernatural so for example um, in these spell books i've been talking about some of them use other people particularly young boys as mediums to try to contact the gods through and some of these involve for example having a boy like lie down with a bowl of scented oil and put like a towel over over his head to kind of close him in with that scent uh, as a way of inducing a trance. And, you know, again, this stuff crops up in the medical literature where um, doctors talk about the, the way that scents can affect the, the body, but also uh, kind of the mind and the emotions. Um, I think I mentioned, for example, it's it's brought up as a cure for insomnia at various points. This This idea that scent kind of helps you to transgress various boundaries between waking and sleep, between the gods and humans, between the supernatural and everyday life, I think is more common than is perhaps recorded in our sources, which the problem with working with ancient literature is that they often don't discuss scent terribly explicitly. So you're sort of putting together little snippets of mentions from here and there but like we do have some explicit discussions of yeah scent will scent will give you good dreams or scent will put you in the right frame of mind to talk directly to Aphrodite or
0: whoever that's really interesting because like I again these connections that don't quite until the moment you say that. It's like the idea that like not only is the body permeable because of scent and the self is sort of permeable, but it actually induces a kind of permeability in that which is around the body, allowing the body to sort of move beyond. That is fascinating. Um, actually, speaking of that, liminality and scent. There is, a, there is a, a sort of theme in this book of scent changing the nature of a space or creating a kind of boundary for a space. Could you talk a little bit about how that sort of functions in sort of the same way that like maybe a door or like a line on the floor would do, but in a way that is entirely its own. Yeah, this is something that we see the magicians
1: of the magical papyri doing very deliberately. Uh, very often as part of the preparation for ritual, they deploy a huge variety of scents. So they will, uh, and this is all in an attempt to contact a god and often to get a god to come and visit them um, physically in their their house, in their space. Uh, A lot of these spells say, you know, if you do this correctly, Apollo will descend from the sky to your rooftop and you can take him by the hand and lead him inside and have a, a nice meal with him and he'll be your friend. Uh, from then on. And there's sort of two goals, I think, with the way they use scent to set up these moments. First of all, if you're inviting a god into your house, your house had better be nice. You had better have cleaned before Apollo comes over. So there's a lot of discussion of ritual purification, um, like you should wash yourself, you should wash your clothing, you should clean your house. And I think partly you are cleansing your space with incenses, with perfumes to make it ritually pure and appropriate for uh, a divinity to come into. And the other half of this is that the magicians, I think, are putting themselves into the right frame of mind by creating a space which, you know, doesn't doesn't smell like all the things that you might smell in a hot Egyptian town in June, or you're sort of blocking out all the everyday smells of your neighbor's cooking and, uh, you know, the donkey next door's dung and so on and so forth. So as part of their setup for these rituals, the the magicians will, just to to catalog some of the ways we see them use scents, they will, for example, make a fire using Aromatic woods like juniper. They'll pour out different types of perfume around them, or they'll perfume themselves. They'll burn incense. There's a huge variety of homemade incense recipes actually in the papyri because you want to be, you want to have exactly the right incense in a lot of these spells, and the wrong one won't work. Um, they'll wear spices on a, a cord around their neck, like an amulet, to perfume themselves, or they'll chew on aromatic seeds seeds or gums to perfume their breath. They'll use tools like uh, little portable altars made out of aromatic woods. It's uh, They're very, very concerned to use the right sense and to use them in abundance to, yeah, to create this space that kind of blocks out their everyday life and to create this uh, little bubble of ritual space and time that's set apart.
0: Do you get the sense that because there, 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 you mentioned sources in this book where the gods are, are thought to have a particularly fragrant smell to them as well. There's something almost something synonymous with their godhood, and they're smelling like ambrosia, like ambrosia is sort of seen as a scent. Do you get the sense that when people are making these kinds of religious magical preparations of a space, that this is creating a situation in which it would be appealing to something that smells good? to come down and be like, yes, this also smells good. Or is it more the sort of idea, or additionally, the sort of idea that they are reverse engineering the presence of the God almost, that because the God smells good, if you make something that smells good, the God will appear because that's just sort of a link that goes both ways. That's a fascinating way of reframing that,
1: which I I wish I had talked about more in this. Because yes, I think you're right that this is like creating the conditions under which the god should show up, and thus almost sort of compelling the god to, to be there by making it so appealing. And this is a type of you know, sort of logic that we we do see in a variety of contexts in the ancient spells. So for example, if you want to induce somebody to fall in love with you, what they often do is love spells are typically curses in this material. Um, so essentially you are cursing somebody to have all of the symptoms of being in love. You know, They should be sleepless. They should be unable to eat. They should be unable to speak because they're just so consumed with thinking about you and how much they want you. Um, so it, that, that would be a, another example of, yes, um, start with the symptoms of what I want and it will induce what I want. And I think that's an interesting model, which I'm now going to have to come back to um, some of this material uh, and and think about. Um, I think also, sort of thinking about this transition in the other direction, I think it's as in some cases, also about making the human more like a god. Mm. Uh, A lot of these spells that I'm thinking of are initiation rituals, where the magician is trying to establish an ongoing relationship with a particular deity to become an initiate of that god and to uh, be able to call on them for various needs. Some of them ascribe a great deal of, like, almost divine experiences to the magician if you do it right so there's this one spell for example where if you do the this very long elaborate ritual correctly uh, it says that you yourself will ascend into the heavens and you will see all of the gods there going about their business and first they'll be angry but then you say the right words and then they're chill essentially and so you know here rather than Apollo coming to your house you're going up to meet um, I forget who you're supposed to be talking to in that one Mithras I think but um, you know sort of that that permeability where the the lines between humans and deities get much blurrier in these moments I think is fascinating.
0: Never thought of theurgy as a kind of housebreaking, but it does sort of sound like, yeah. <laughs> like, oh, why are they so upset? Because I just came in through the window, but it's okay. I've got I something very that. charming to say. <laughs> It's entirely fine. Actually, making sure that the
1: gods are not displeased with you or that if they are displeased with you, they can't actually hurt you is a major component of a lot of these spells where um, there's various comments that if you use the wrong incense or if you don't set up the magical circle correctly, the, the god you're speaking to, for example, Selene, will be able to harm you for your presumption in summoning her up and making making her talk to you. Uh, There's one that comments that, uh, you know, if you don't do this right, Selene is going to pick you up and take you and drop you from a height somewhere. So take the right precautions before you try to summon a god.
0: Yeah, um, this does kind of, it's amazing how much the gods are sort of like birds where if you make the baby birds smell like you, they will reject it and take it out of the nest. (laughs) I mean, it's interesting the the idea of like I think there, I think Bets has been sort of the classic PGM edition for so long. But now I hear yes. there's, there's work on a new translation. The, is... the
1: first the first volume just came out actually,
0: uh, same month as my book.
1: I've not gotten a hold of a copy of it yet. But yes, this should be really a uh, a fantastic moment for the study of ancient magic. That's coming out of the University of Chicago, where uh, they have a a team of people who have been putting this together over the last couple of years. One of the things that excites me about that is kind of talking about know what we've been saying about thinking about texts as more than just sort of the words on the page where the form doesn't matter um from what i understand having heard about that volume before it came out is they they're thinking a lot more about kind of the physical arrangement of uh the the spell books and the physicality of these spell books that um you know betts's older translation doesn't really get into much but this uh this new volume is looking i think a lot more about like how are things arranged on the page how is the spell actually laid out what is the physical experience of working with one of these
0: that is super cool i never thought of like the idea of like a magical book actually having like a significance of like recto versus verso on on what you're doing very cool so you mentioned that the the people who are probably doing the pgm rights were of a particular sort of class status, and i would like to sort of direct our attention sort of towards the economics incenses in this period for a second mostly by asking you about the root cutters in general but also how hard to get were a lot of these incenses was the idea of like i'm going to incense this temple like i'm sure there were differences in how one would incense a temple versus one's home you know altar like you know because i you mentioned i think like the idea of like the difference between say a crown made out of cinnamon bark or maybe laurels For like a temple versus say hanging a quince on just a statue in somebody's house but like was that a class difference as well or just a question of scale
1: i think both uh i think partly people who can afford more expensive ingredients do i think feel they're more efficacious Uh, a lot of these ingredients would be difficult to get either because they're expensive but maybe easy easy to get but more expensive or because they're just hard to source, which I will note is not necessarily a bad thing from the magician's perspective, because exotic ingredients, hard to get ingredients, those feel more special. They feel like they're probably more magical in some way. Something that I've noticed with the Roman spells that I've looked at is that as you move forward in time, People start reaching out farther and farther and farther, um, looking for ingredients that are like exotic enough to count as magical. So you look at early Roman sources and wolf blood is magical, but a couple of centuries later, wolves aren't special enough anymore. So you want, say, a seal skin. And then a couple of centuries after that, it's like you need hippo blood because everything else is too easy to get and ordinary. But yeah, the economics of this, the magicians who are using these preserved spell books, like these are long elaborate texts where the reader's They definitely have to be highly literate. So, we're already talking about the upper class. They'd have to have a certain amount of privacy and leisure time to carry out these rituals as described. And yeah, they're probably investing a fair amount of money in acquiring the ingredients for them and also just a lot of trouble. Like, I don't know how expensive it would be to get, say, orangutan fur, which some of the spells call for, but. Like, is this a question of money or is it a question of time and access? I don't know. So money is definitely a factor, but also like a lot of the ingredients are just difficult or illicit. Like some of them involve taking a finger from a corpse or other, other things that maybe you just don't want to be seen gathering or that are difficult to get a hold of like a cup of water from a shipwreck. So I think it's sort of, half economically difficult and half just practically difficult to assemble the things that you need for these spells. But we do see a spectrum, too, in the spell books where, you know, sometimes your incense involves 15 of these difficult expensive ingredients but other times you get an incense which i suspect is kind of the, the poor man's version where you're getting much simpler ingredients for example there's uh, one incense that is supposed to be made out of like river reeds and sulfur both of which would have been easier um, others involve like easily gathered common plants um and then maybe like one special ingredient you have to pay a little bit more for. So I think you know we're we're seeing a lot of this world through the lens of fairly well-off magicians, but we know there's a a fairly large and vigorous world of magic being done by more ordinary people with more ordinary means. This is one of the reasons I got really interested in the farming spells, because a lot of them are just super everyday. This is a look at the type of magic, which is not often reflected in our corpora of ancient literature, um, but was probably closer to the experiences of 99% of people in antiquity on an everyday basis. So you know, wear a wear a carrot around your neck as an amulet as opposed to make this super complex incense over the course of 15 days.
0: This reminds me of something interesting you mentioned in the book. I mean the, the book is very interesting. I mean the whole thing is very interesting, what let, let that not Thank you. be an ambival- an ambiguous thing that I've just said. But like you mentioned garlic having this sense of magical efficacy, but also this very sort of imbued class marker to it. Could you talk a little bit about about garlic and class. Yeah, I'm fascinated by, by garlic,
1: where there's this dichotomy in antiquity where people love garlic, but they also hate garlic, where there's sort of this acknowledgement that people eat garlic a lot, but it's definitely marked as a food of poor people. So even when rich people Enjoy garlic, indulge in garlic, perhaps. There's definitely a sense that they're kind of slumming it. So we get this poem by Horace, who, like, it's a complaint to his friend Mycenaeus, who has invited him to dinner and then played what Horace describes as sort of nasty practical joke of serving him poor people food full of garlic. And uh, Horace sort of goes on about, I, my, my stomach, it can't handle this. It's burning. It's like poison. Um, I hope that the next time you serve garlic, you go to kiss your girlfriend in bed and she pushes you away because you have garlic breath. So yeah, strongly, strongly marked as lower class, but also the scent is just so overpowering that there's this sense that there's something supernatural and special about it, that garlic is either used by witches, Horus compares garlic to Medea's potions, um, or that you can use garlic to stave off witches or other supernatural dangers. Um, and this is part of a larger body of folklore that we get for, for millennia in Europe about how garlic and chives and onions and these other sort of sulfurous smelling allium plants are good against supernatural dangers of which Uh, Sort of the association of garlic is something you can use to ward off vampires is, I think, the um, major surviving
0: example of. So what kind of magical uses would garlic be used for? Is it just sort of like in terms of like the practicality of it? Is it just sort of I've eaten a lot of garlic. So now when I speak my my curses against the witches, they'll have the efficacy of the allium or is it more sort of like we've hung garlic about the house and I'm wearing garlic as an amulet or how how would it work? More the second thing, I think the idea that if you just kind of have garlic
1: around, it's good against warding off dangers. Um, So you might hang it on somebody as an amulet or keep it in your house as uh, almost a talisman, um, almost as much as the smell. There's a really interesting moment in which I can't say for certain that we're talking about garlic, but certainly some people in antiquity thought that we were. Do you remember the episode in the Odyssey where Odysseus going to find out what's happened to his men who have not returned from investigating this mysterious house in the middle of an island? They've been transformed into pigs by Circe, who was not enthusiastic about receiving visitors at that time. And so Odysseus He's going along, trying to find out what's happened to his crew, and he is met by the god Hermes, who comes down and says, basically, like, this is what happened to the half of your crew that hasn't come back. Cersei turned them into pigs. She's going to do the same to you. And here's a magical plant. And the Odyssey describes this herb that Hermes hands to Odysseus as... a a remarkable plant which the gods are able to pick, but it's too difficult for humans to pull up. Uh, It has a um, a milk white flower and a dark root and it's called molly in the language of the gods according to homer and odysseus takes this along with him and it prevents Circe from being able to work her magic on him like her potion doesn't work on him the way it worked on his men we're not told what odysseus did with this plant maybe he's just carrying it inside of his um, his clothing but yeah, the fact that it's called Molly in the language of the gods raises the question, okay, if that's what the gods call it, what do we humans call it? And this is a question that people tried to answer in antiquity. And the answer that a lot of them came to is garlic. They identified this sort of bulbous, um, bulbous plant with a flower stalk and a, a white flower as being potentially a variety of garlic and so there you have you know if you if you go along with him on that you have somebody warding off a witch's spells just kind of by having it with him
0: so it's not even a question of, of repelling the witch or something like that it's like a prophylactic against magic just sort of generally
1: i think so yeah
0: Fascinating. I also love the idea of um, language of gods. It's called Molly. So of course, modern practitioners practitioners might just use MDMA or something like that. But um, exactly. But this actually brings up something that I wanted to talk about: the idea of like it's too hard to gather. The harvesting is is something beyond the ken of mortals. Like this idea of the root cutter, the person whose job it was actually to get these medicinal incenses, these um, these these herbs of potency. What kind of figures were these? this period yeah we get a lot of references to people
1: who are these specialists in gathering various herbs and plants and they they're the sort of people who seem to be generally lower class than the type of people who are writing down this stuff so we get for example references in ancient medical authors to you know go to the rise de tomoy the root cutters to get these plants that you need. Like you're not going to be going out and gathering these yourself. You have people for that. There's specialists whose entire job it is to know where to find these plants and how to gather them safely. Because plants, which are efficacious for magic, for medicine, for various uses, they often do feel that they're dangerous in some way until they're essentially tamed by picking them. So the rituals of the root cutters may involve drawing a magical circle with a sword around the plant or burning incense and fumigating the plant or saying the right magical words or various other precautions. There's one plant, the peony, that people think is so dangerous that you shouldn't pull it yourself at all. Instead, you have to get a dog and you tie a rope to the dog and a rope to the peony and then you lure the dog into running away uh, so that it yanks the plant out of the ground and the peony is so dangerous that the dog then dies. It's killed by whatever force uh, is released by pulling this plant out of the ground. But but then it's sort of dissipated and you can go pick up the plant and use it for your purposes. So the de Tomoi are these, they're definitely not upper-class figures. Um, They seem to be respected professionals, but more like middle-class tradesmen or uh, lower-class workers with this specialist knowledge who people who need to source special plants can can go to and can buy their wares from. And they seem to have been kind of showmen in some cases. We get one story about a guy, um, there's various terms for these people. He's not actually called a root caller, like an herb seller, I think is what he's actually termed. But he sets up a stall in the, Center of a city where he sells his herbs to customers, but he uh, basically advertises himself as a spectacle. One day he says, "I'm going to drink so and so number of cups of hemlock, and it won't hurt me because I'm, you know, my body is inured to the effect of these plants that I pick." And he, he sort of sits there on his stool in his stall all day, drinking cups of hemlock as people watch and you know, goes away, apparently unscathed.
0: I didn't realize the ancient Mediterranean had its own David Blaine. That's very exciting. They go hard. My gosh. So you mentioned in the book that these sorts of these, part of this, you know, elaborate attempt to tame the plant before you pluck it from the earth to save yourself involved, propitiations of potentially the gods, the plant itself, and the earth. Would these follow more or less the same trajectories of like, I assume you say, you know, something to these different objects and you, you know, I'm sorry, or here, please give me permission or something like that. Or would it be more elaborate than that? Would there be like an exchange of some kind played out? Some
1: Sometimes, yes. We get a variety of rituals recorded. They're a little bit hard to talk about because they're often being described by people to make fun of them. So Mm. sort of hostile witnesses. But on the other hand, we do get a couple of these in the spell books, which tell the magician what you should do and say. Sometimes there seems to be an offering like, there's one that I can think of that says, once you've pulled the plant out of the ground, in the hole that it's left behind, you should make an offering of grains to the earth to kind of atone for picking this plant. One of the spells in the magical pyre, you're supposed to recite this spell to the plant that says, like, you know, oh, plant, uh, what a, I think you just fill in the blank here with whatever you're picking. Uh, I am picking you with my five-fingered hand, and I'm going to use you for such and such purpose. And you're sort of explaining to the plant what you want it for and why it should let you pick it and why it should then go on to contribute its powers to the spell or the remedy or uh, whatever else you're going to use it in. So yeah, really justifying yourself to the plant itself um, and kind of getting its buy-in essentially. Mm, That's very cool. There's a lot of interesting stuff to be said about Sort of talking to plants as if they are uh, sentient beings, and and almost kind of managing plants' emotions in various ancient contexts. One of my favorite spells from all antiquity. This is a complete tangent, but please, it's my favorite. The uh, 10th century compendium called the Geoponica. It's this Byzantine manual of. It's like. It's, excerpts of older farming works that somebody has collected and thinks are good. And in it, you get a spell for what you do if you have a fruit tree that does not produce fruit. These books are very concerned about what happens if you have orchard trees, basically, that aren't producing or or setting fruit. So what you do is you take an ax in your hand and you tie up your clothing like you're gonna do hard work and you go storming up to the tree, you're raising this ax and threatening the tree that you're about to cut it down. But you have previously arranged with a friend to have them run into the scene and catch your arm and say, no, no, I'm sure the tree feels very bad about the fact that it's not giving you fruit. It will behave better from now on. I will make myself responsible for this tree's behavior. And essentially the tree will be shamed into starting to produce
0: the fruit that you want from it. You play good cop, bad cop with the tree. Exactly, with the tree. What's also incredible about that is that actually, I I had a book of, I still do, a book of Bulgarian folklore, and that has survived at least Really. For the printing of that book. So that is very fascinating. I would love that reference if you can send that to me. Absolutely. I'll email it to you. We've, we've covered a lot of the bases that I wanted to cover. Actually, ooh, so speaking of those root cutters, I think the ones we were talking about seem to be much more sort of the male, you know, professional class type root cutter. But there's also a sense of the female root cutter being sort of synonymous with the witch. Witches, yeah. And I am curious, to what extent does scent play a role in like the personhood of the witch in this time or the idea of their magical efficacy? Like maybe like, to what extent does scent play a role in things like erotic magic, which I think there's some sort of connection there.
1: Oh, this is a huge topic. So scent is deeply, deeply involved in imaginary portrayals of witches in ancient literature. And I'm going to preface this with a, a general comment that when we see... Descriptions of magic in ancient imaginative literature, epic poems, novels, etc. It is much more often ascribed to women, even when we know that when we look at other bodies of evidence, it seems to be more often practiced by men. So there's a certain amount of projection going on here from our authors. But yeah, so starting with really our earliest portrayals of witches in Greek literature, scent is already an issue. I've mentioned Odysseus sort of warding off. Circe, potentially, with this smelly garlic. But by the time we get portrayals of, for example, Medea in classical literature, witches in that period are often being described as root cutters. And root cutter becomes kind of the common Greek term for a witch in this period, where the idea is that their magic is essentially based on knowledge of plants and ability to make potions or ointments or other things with them. So we get this fragment of uh, a play by Sophocles, which has otherwise been lost, unfortunately. I would love to have all of this. It's his play called Medea, and we get just this fragment preserved by a much, much later author describing somebody, probably Medea, who is naked and sort of making this ululating shriek as she cuts magical herbs and lets their juice drain into bronze vessels. So she's collecting this for uh, some sort of ceremony. Uh, The play was called Root Cutters. And we assume that following the convention of titling ancient plays, the root cutters, plural, were probably the chorus who we're guessing were probably like assistants to Medea in the, uh, as the main character of this play. So there we've got a description of a you know, sort of a de to tomos, a, a root cutter who would have usually been male as far as we can tell from ancient sources transported into the literary realm where they become a woman instead and a famous witch uh, who, I know, Medea was a a very old figure. We know that there are many, many lost works on her going back before this period. But I think it's really playing into, um, in her depiction here, kind of the fascination in this period with root cutters, who seem to be having kind of a moment in fifth century Greece, where we start getting a lot more literary notices of them, and they seem to the kind of this alternative system to the the class of people who call themselves doctors which is a different word and who seem to be like trying to establish professional standards and really set themselves apart from these more more ritual, more folkloric practitioners who they want to kind of contrast their own work with. But then as we get later, we move from sort of a witch as root cutter into witch as perfume user. By the time we get into Roman literature, we find a variety of witches who use magical perfumes to essentially ensnare men with their sort of hypnotic, good smells that people just can't resist. This kind of starts in Apollonius's Argonautica where his version of Medea uses sense a lot to do various things, to put the serpent guarding the golden fleece to sleep, to uh, essentially lure her brother into a trap where Jason can ambush him and kill him. And then as we get into Roman literature, uh, we have witches who themselves smell bad uh, Roman witches are much more likely to be sort of lower class and bad smelling than Greek witches were. And these witches are often, despite their bad personal scent, described as users of magical perfumes who um, sort of overcome men's minds with these hypnotically beautiful
0: scents. Huh. So there's a sense that they sort of inherently smell that, but there's a there's a masking.
1: Yeah. And I think that contrast is for the Romans part of the horror. There's a real distinction between Greek witches and Roman witches. Greek witches tended to be upper class figures. They are often demigoddesses like Circe and Medea in literature. And they're generally described as sort of young, beautiful, alluring. Whereas Roman witches are much more often described as definitely lower class. They're usually sort of old and ugly and described in terms that the Romans would see appropriate to like Old, ugly, poor women. They smell bad. They're ugly. Their teeth are all rotten. Their hair is disheveled and gray. They have snakes in it. And I, I think that sense that, like, they smell bad, but uh, Roman witches are, are most often doing love magic. So the sense that, like, they're deeply unattractive, but they can force men to desire them regardless is. Sort of the horrific effect that Roman authors are going for here, the sense that they can overcome men's actual judgment in order to, you know, force men to to do what they want is really part of the dynamic that the Roman authors are setting up.
0: That is really interesting because I'm so used to hearing a narrative like that as being sort of about like the empowerment of the witch as opposed to the way this sort of comes across now, which is more about giving male figures in a society the ability to jettison any sense of responsibility for their actions onto the people who have less power than they do as being like, I didn't, you know, this thing that is, you know, against the mores in some way, I did it because I was made to do it. That's what this was. I, I, the most powerful person in society was rendered powerless by sense. Oh no. It's a great get out of jail free card.
1: And in fact, there's one case which comes up uh, that Cicero describes where he's defending a woman in court from, I forget what the case is actually about, but the opposing lawyer gets up to speak and to make his prosecution and just completely forgets everything that he was going to say. And you know, obviously this is a, an embarrassing moment for him and he resorts to saying, well, your, your client much, must have bewitched me. She bound my tongue with a curse. So it's a sort of face saving like and Cicero is not describing this as, oh, yes, he was he was cursed. Cicero is describing this as, oh, God, you won't believe what excuse my opposing you know, lawyer in this courtroom tried to pull out. Like Cicero is very clear that this is just like a face saving excuse that he's trying to deploy. And he certainly expects everybody that he's writing about this incident to to also take it the same way. But it's, it's kind of a nice, nice fallback if you really want to excuse your own not just behavior, but sort of lapse
0: in general yeah i am this connection especially i mean like i i feel like gender politics and scent and power could be its own whole separate study especially with oh, this yeah. idea of like the characterizes male professionalization of medicine and the necessary sort of contrast and relegation of 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 female medical practitioners to the realm of superstition as being a mm-hmm. a really interesting dynamic yes absolutely but actually this does, so I wanna make sure I get to all the questions that were submitted to me by people because sure. I do have you on the line. And this is a rare possibility to, to be able to <laughs> pick your brain about this on behalf of others. Um, and one of them in fact that is relevant is, is there a link between pheromones and perfumes in this time period? And I, I imagine that there wouldn't be much of a con, or a different conception of pheromones, right? Cause there was talk of animals having say, sweet breath that allures their prey. In this, but I imagine that's not necessarily the same as pheromones. I mean, it's certainly not the same as pheromones as we understand them now, but like would that sort of play into a larger conception of the relationship between pheromones and perfumes at the time? Was there even a conception of pheromones as a thing at the time?
1: Sort of. There's there's a related, yeah, yeah, maybe I shouldn't say related. There's there's a vaguely similar concept of sympathies and antipathies in antiquity. This belief that. Certain things just sort of have a natural affinity for each other or the opposite. They have a natural repulsion from each other, which the way they think about this is not really, it's not pheromones, but it's kind of a similar sense that like there's something mysterious and invisible that just make certain things really like other things or really dislike other things. So this is this is often used as an intellectualized way of explaining things that probably have a more folkloric start as magic. So for example, if you say snakes and ash trees are just fundamentally, they have an antipathy to each other. They are fundamentally incompatible. Snakes hate ash trees. If you put an ash Uh, a circle of ash leaves around something you want to protect. Snakes will not crawl through them. And this is something that, say, the farming authors that I work on use to try to explain folkloric beliefs as, well, it's actually scientific, like you can catalog all of these (coughs) sympathies and antipathies in the world and kind of understand how things work. And this definitely overlaps into scent in some places. There's this, the, the text I mentioned earlier, the Geoponica, there's a passage in that where the author says, like, here's how you protect your artichoke roots. You can wrap them in, in wool and something else, like a, a plant or something, I think, to protect them. And mice then will not come and chew them off. And this author specifically says, I don't know whether this works because of the smell or whether it's because of an antipathy that just naturally exists, it just works. So there we've got somebody sort of equating like this mysterious natural antipathy slash magic that people believe in with a smell, but also kind of saying, like, we just don't have the tools to try to parse out the differences between these things. And I think there's a lot of that overlap going on at a very gut level where, yeah, there's a, a lot of belief that, you know, certain things are just, they have this magical attractive force, whether it's because of a smell or the way they look, or because somebody deliberately used a spell and trying to diagnose what the root cause of this is, uh, is difficult
0: for people. Okay. So like the idea of like trying to use a pheromone in a perfume, like that doesn't quite because it's just part of the general idea of a perfume is just an attractive thing. Yes, I've wandered off
1: the uh, the actual no, question no. here, but, but yeah, um I, I there's not really a conception of pheromone specifically, but on the other hand, like I'm kind of leaning towards talking about it in this way because i feel like we often talk about pheromones as almost this magical thing like um, if you want to explain you know why there's some attraction to this person like do you actually know what pheromones are and how they work i sure don't but i i feel like it's It's this sort of, you know, explanation, which on the one hand, yeah, there's science behind this. But um, I feel like certainly if I said that, it's not because I understand the science. It's because I have this very general, almost folkloric understanding of like this biological sounding process. And I think that's often what we get in antiquity, like people kind of saying, you know, here's a nice scientific explanation or, or sounding explanation whether I really understand it or not. but it's a way to talk about some of these things that happen, um, you know attractions, repulsions without just saying I don't know, it's mysterious, this happens.
0: Okay And while we're on the topic of things that people have asked me to ask you, mm-hmm. did you come across any connections between scent and the memory arts in your research?
1: A little bit, not a ton, but a little bit. There's, for example, there's one spell in the papyri where you're supposed to be inducing a dream. So the magician lies down to sleep and they're supposed to have a vision of a god in their dreams. And partly you're supposed to burn incense in the bedroom before you go to sleep. And, And this seems to be helping to induce the correct sort of dream. But there's also a bit in there about... Uh, Part of the spell is intended to help you remember your dream uh, when Mm. you wake up. And I think the incense is involved in that, if I remember correctly. There's, There's not a ton on this. A lot of the stuff that I'm working with is not discussed explicitly it's more like people describe what they do and you have to kind of piece together how they're thinking about what they do so i suspect there's a lot more of that going on where you know in the spell you're supposed to ascend to heaven and meet the gods and uh you know this particular part of the incense is supposed to help you remember all of this but that doesn't get written down um it's just kind of you know, me guessing that maybe the magicians might be thinking about that based on a a very small handful of references like that sleep
0: spell. Uh, So the last one, which I, you know, for the, in the interest of being thorough and being a resource to, to the listeners, is there any historical magical basis for the bog of eternal stench in Labyrinth (laughs) that you came across? (laughs) <laughs> oh, gosh. Um, actually, there are some
1: connections where like, places smell supernaturally bad. Like, There's one bit in Apollonius's Argonautica where the Jason and the Argonauts and Medea, they're escaping from the kingdom of Colchis where they've just taken the golden fleece and they're having this kind of long, difficult journey. Among other things, the gods are angry with them because they have killed Medea's brother who was Trying to get her to come home with him, uh, Jason has ambushed him and killed him. And this is it. This blood guilt is following them. The the gods are displeased. So they wind up kind of spending days sailing through this area where just the entire air and the water around them stinks because this is where uh, Phaethon, who had tried to drive the chariot of the sun across the sky, hubristically, um, he had uh, gotten too close to the sun and caught fire and he had plunged to earth and this is where he had fallen into the ocean and the entire region just still smells like Phaethon's burning corpse. Um, so it's this deeply creepy scene where it's like, you know, the gods have stranded you in this horrible, smelly area with these dreadful mythological associations as punishment for your bad behavior.
0: Incredible. Okay, so the answer to that question yeah. is sort of yes. Incredible. That was not what I was expecting. All. <laughs> That's great. I, this has been so wonderful. And it, we're coming up on two hours now, so I should definitely let you go. Gosh. But thank you so much for doing this. Before you go, is there anything you want to leave us with as like a final thought or a final sort of thing that you want to make sure comes across in this? Oh gosh.
1: Well, it's been such a pleasure doing this as a final thought. I guess I would just say, we we talked about this a little bit. I'm paying a lot more attention to my own sort of sensory world and how I curate that than I used to before I started doing this research. And I think this is worth doing. Among other things, I find that when I do pay more attention to my surroundings, you know, days feel longer and richer. If I stop and write down one interesting sensation that I've experienced each day, it uh, days stop melting into each other in quite such a frantic and and pressed for time fashion and i feel that life is richer and i would suggest that everybody pay a little bit more attention perhaps to what they're smelling or feeling or hearing as they go about their day
0: that is incredibly wonderful advice oh my gosh yes thank you you. this has been a joy thank you so much thank you for a wonderful conversation it's really been a pleasure A thousand thanks to Britta Ager for that splendid chat. I will have links, of course, in the show notes to where you can buy the book and where you can learn more about the work that she's doing. After the interview, she was kind enough to send a list of suggested further reading, which I am going to have in the show notes as well. But in case you just want to hear it and you don't want to read it, I will read it to you wicked fast. So she recommends Drawing Down the Moon by Radcliffe G. Edmonds III, Magic in Ancient Greece and Rome by Lindsay C. Watson, Magic Witchcraft and Ghosts in the Greek and Roman Worlds, A Sourcebook by Daniel Ogden, uh, The Bets: translation of the Greek Magical Papyri, and Cursed Tablets and Binding Spells from the Ancient World, edited by John Gager. She also, very exciting, recommended a particular spell for inducing dreams from the Greek Magical Papyri, and that is PGM 2, lines 1 through 64. So go check out the Greek Magical Papyri for that. She also says, incredibly helpfully, that it is on pages 12 through 14 of the Hans Dieter Betz edition of the Greek Magical Papyri. Very fun. That was a great talk, I really enjoyed that. And it's kind of, you know, the book and the chat really changed my thinking specifically about like planetary magic, right? Because I think I'm so used to the idea of planetary magic being kind of like, you know, because the planets, they get personified into gods or spirits or whatever, and you might reasonably think if I do this Jupiterian thing, you know, I, I'm picturing a dude, a dude who looks, you know, big and burly or whatever you picture Jupiter looking like, you know, coming down and kind of doing the thing that i need done but this idea of you know sense creating a situation in which a sort of action is likely to occur right like you're setting the stage for a particular kind of story kind of changes like planetary magic to be more in my head kind of like changing the weather conditions so that the same action is more likely to generate a different effect or a stronger effect like um you know if you scratch two big rocks together in the woods every day of the year there are some days where it's going to start a forest fire and there's some days where it's not and a lot of that has to do with like how hot it is how dry it's been and so like planetary magic is suddenly you know creating the conditions for the forest fire or dampening the conditions for the forest fire even though the action is identical that you are doing so rather than operating off of a model of planetary magic where like the, the planet is just uh, a silly little guy who shows up and does stuff. It's like, actually, I am the silly little guy in this scenario and the planet is making the stuff that I do more likely to go a certain way by creating those sorts of conditions, you know? uh, Whether or not I'm going to slide across the kitchen and break the front of the oven has to do with how slippery the floor is and what kind of socks I'm wearing. And I am the person who's going to be doing that in either scenario. But, you know, my Jupiterian magic is creating a situation where uh, I am wearing very grippy socks, so that doesn't happen. Or my Mercurial magic is uh, someone has put olive oil on the floor before I'm doing this, and I'm wearing socks that are very slippery. I don't know what those would be exactly. Uh, silk stockings? Are those slippery? It's funny, when I, when I say that, like, I, I picture socks of some sort, I think. But, like, I also immediately just jumped to the TV show from probably when I was five. Uh, silk stockings which i don't were they like were they sexy cops was that the idea of that show huh anyway uh this has been witch hassle thank you so much for listening if you want to support the show go to patreon.com slash uh as always our theme music was performed by sebastian Baverstam and recorded by edward lee good luck with the work ahead